Hello everybody out there, welcome back to another exciting episode of Here's a Guy. Um, returning this week as is, uh, well, me to start with. Um, as always, coming to you from St. Louis, Missouri, it is me, Alex, that's my name. Um, I am joined by uh, my two fabulous co-hosts, starting with my older brother Cody, coming in from uh, Illinois. Cody, how are you? I'm good. I, I just I need to get it out there that every time you do that, I'm tempted to just not respond and then not say anything for the whole episode, so everyone thinks you're doing a really really weird bit. <laughs> That's uh, that'll be our uh, alternative humor uh, special. That'll be our Adult Swim special that we do. Yeah, that's uh, our Monty Python moment. Yeah. I can't wait for it's a two hour recording of Alex doing the intro, an hour fifty nine of silence, and then Alex doing a very quiet outro. It could just be me, like pretending I'm. Um, people think one of two things: either uh, just that that you know we are a very low rent operation, and so our our audio was messed up, or that uh, the two of you unfortunately passed away, and I very sadly am continuing to do it. Um, this uh, is our Garfield uh, minus Garfield. Yeah. We could just do the audio of this and take me and Jack out. Yeah, just, just mute us on Discord, but still continue to have the conversation. I love it. How's this for a segue? Um, if you want to hear a little more, more about uh, Garfield minus Garfield and some other Garfield-related topics, listen to my guest episode on the BelchCast. The BelchCast has two hosts. One of them is Jack, who's also a host of this podcast. And you heard him talking a, a couple minutes ago. Jack, how are you? I'm doing great. I... I love that anytime, like, I think of Garfield now, I just think of just the entire rant that we had with Garfield, and honestly, I learned so much from you, and I've learned more than I think I ever could learn about Garfield, and if you want to go on the deep dive that is the iceberg of Garfield lore, uh, look no further than, I think it was, like, episode 15, where Alex, we give him a full platform of, like, an hour and a half to talk about Garfield. Yeah, they just let me go. See, and the amazing thing, I didn't even, I think I've said this, I didn't even get to everything that I could have gotten to. I could do a part two and fill it with the same amount of time. You know, there are many things that make Garfield an American institution, but I think my favorite thing that gives it staying power is all of the really weird alternative comedy that has sprung from it. And I don't yeah. know why it works so perfectly for that, but I mean, Garfield minus Garfield being an example um, and a couple of our favorite uh, Twitter accounts as well. Yeah. Garfield getting thrown out of the window is probably my favorite. The pipe Garfield's pretty, pretty yes. good too. Yeah. The Garfield and friends uh, screenshots account had a great one today um, where Garfield was supposed to be um getting busted, getting a, a jar of pickles out of the fridge. But I guess Jim Davis doesn't really know how to draw pickles, and so it looked like he was holding a jar full of just big-ass nugs of weed. <laughs> um, now, that would be a great one for Pipe Garfield. Absolutely. Um, the the thing that we, we talked about a couple minutes ago reminded me of a uh, an IC story. And, uh, yes, we are going to have some IC stories. Um, part of our... our uh, Recurring efforts to fill people in in the lore of the, the three of us. Um, but a uh, beloved political science professor at IC, uh, who all three of us had, Dr. Wells, told us a story once. Um, before our time, there was this, this professor there who had been there forever. And Dr. Wells said he was walking by um, the classroom that he was teaching in. And it had like a glass door so he could see in. And the guy was up there giving a lecture to absolutely nobody. There was nobody in the class. Nobody showed up. And he asked the professor later, what was that all about? 
And the guy said, they pay me to teach. doesn't matter if I have any students or not. I'm coming in to teach. Demented shit. Yeah, that is that is truly a psychotic way to look at the world. <laughs> I I imagine it's one of those things where he just like he like kind of looks up and he's like, no one's here. All right, fuck them all. I'm doing it. <laughs> T- teaching a class yeah, out that, of spite. That means like, oh my god, that means if the apocalypse ever happens, I'm just gonna be walking around trying to sell ad space to rocks and rabbits and whatever the fuck else is in the neighborhood. Um, so I don't know what I'll do. Um, I guess, I guess kick my feet up and relax. I don't have to go to court for once. You you defend those rocks and rabbits when I sue them for not delivering. That's right. That's right. I'm going to do the same thing I do every day and just cry in my office in front of my (laughs) computer. I thought you were going to say try to take over the world. I mean, I've got plenty of rocks in my backyard. I I think I've got a good head start, but. So speaking of IC and uh, low points for Jack. Um, <laughs> so, th- so Thanksgiving's coming up, um, and, you know, next week, assuming we put out an episode at some point, um, we'll probably talk a little bit more about the holiday itself, but there's actually like a, a bit of a pre-holiday for Thanksgiving, which is that by some estimates, the eve of, of Thanksgiving is the biggest drinking night of the entire year in the U.S., even more so than like New Year's Eve, um, presumably because... I believe it. Yeah, people are, are back in town on that Wednesday night, and they like to get together. My friends and I will often do the same thing. I think this year we're going to be doing that on the weekend instead. But um, So we'll talk a little bit more about Thanksgiving next week. But we did, I think, want to commemorate um, that little pre-holiday where people uh, tend to go perhaps a bit overboard and share uh, at least one tale of a time that uh, one of us went overboard which is uh, where I see and low points for Jack comes in. <laughs> it's a story we've been so, teasing for a while. Look, um, I was actually a case called Blackout Wednesday. Yeah, I was actually, I actually don't think I was a, around for this evening. I feel you like were, I, you were not there. Yeah, not there. I, I feel no. like it's one of those things where I'd convinced myself at one point that I was, but that's just because I've heard you two talking about it so much. But I think the reality is I wasn't around this night. I think no, you would have I, saved I, me. I, if you, you were, were. You were definitely not. No. And you would have told me that what I ended up doing was a stupid idea. Um, <laughs> or so I would you in. So I have told, I've been telling the story for 10 years, so I'm going to assume responsibility for, for telling the tale here. here yeah, this evening. T- tell us about <laughs> the time Jack threw himself in the trash. Okay. So um, my senior year of college, I shared a college apartment. What, what we're called college. It's just a, an apartment building. The campus owned basically with our friend Tom. Um, And this was at the point during that year where Jack did not live with us, but basically lived with us. Like he was just there all the time. And Tom and I legitimately a couple times were like, did you let him in? No. Did you let it? How the hell did he get in here? (laughs) We just get back from class and and there would be Jack. Another thing we did that uh, the, administration absolutely hated was we would throw full-scale house parties in a small two-bedroom apartment on a pretty much weekly basis this was a smaller gathering however um tom's girlfriend was visiting from out of town um there were a couple other people uh, about that we wanted to hang out it was, it was kind of a smaller gathering because we only invited people that we thought could handle wisest wizard yeah <laughs> now 
for those uninitiated, not not a game for the, the faint drinking of heart. game. The yeah, literally, you can have a heart attack and die. Yeah, uh, Wisest Wizard is a very nerdy but very very difficult drinking game, in which you drink cans of beer, or I guess cans of any. I I think the general is beer. I was doing Budweiser that night, and as you finish one. You tape it to the one you finished last, so on and so forth, so as to make a wizard staff. And we threw in the addendum that every five, you had to take a shot in order to level up. So Jack, at this time, weighs about 120 pounds. <laughs> as has been mentioned previously on the podcast, I'm a pretty large dude. And I take pride in my ability to hold my liquor fairly well. And... As, as several other stories that will probably come out on this podcast at some other point will will show. But Jack decides that he is going to keep pace with me. Like, he seems bound and determined to beat me. And we did this through, I think, seven beers. I mean, this is seven, yes. I, I Yeah, I don't want to <coughs> speculate on how long exactly that took, but it wasn't long because we were, like, drinking competitively. It was it was a race between everyone in the apartment. Everyone was trying to be the wisest wizard, and it was a challenge. And the thing that I realized that they apparently did not, or some of you, is that that race is a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, yeah. It's all about endurance. Right. It's all about the end of the night. So Jack keeps up with me through seven, and as he often did when he got uh, really, really drunk, his mind was stuck on the idea of food. Yeah. And there were apparently uh, some boxes of mac and cheese back at your apartment that we did wind up finding a use for on a different occasion that we'll probably talk about on this uh, on this podcast. Yeah, it wasn't mac and cheese. I had food from um, the like whatever the fuck that like little like mini restaurant is next to the calf like that was the open grill. Right next to the grill. Yeah, I had stuff from the grill. And, like, I'd eaten half of it because I was like, I need to eat before this party. I'm going to get hammered tonight. And I ate half of, like, some sort of sandwich or pasta or something. But I was like, you know what would fucking hit right now? The rest of that food I was saving. Yeah. So the apartment building that Tom and I were living in had what I consider kind of a stupid design flaw, which was that instead of keys, our student IDs were used, like, in the card readers to open the door. And that's how you got in the building and in your apartment. So Jack says, Hey, I'm going to go back to my dorm and get the rest of this food. Um, can you like, do you want to go with, you know, how am I getting back in? So I just give him my ID because I had had enough beers by this point that I thought, <laughs> yeah, there's a chance he'll get it back to me <laughs> in, a, in a reasonable time and manner. Yeah, that shows you that I was feeling the effects of those beers a little bit. We right. all made mistakes. There, there was today. there was your critical error in judgment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No. Trust me, it has not been repeated. <laughs> My keys are designed to electrocute him if he ever touches them. Like like Ruben's old never... fridge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god that's another fun oh. that's another fun one we'll talk about at some point that was a treacherous um, treacherous apartment for partying which is weird because yeah. we partied there a lot well it's because it was such a shithole already there wasn't <laughs> much we could do to it that would make it worse so no so jack leaves he's gone for a while i continue drinking competitively 
like the college athlete you were. Yeah. Yeah. About, I'd say 45 minutes to almost an hour goes by. And I'm thinking, number one, where the hell is Jack and what did he get himself into? And number two, that little fucker's got my ID and that's the only way, like, I can't leave this apartment and be able to get back in without it. So, I pick up my phone, I call Jack, somebody else entirely answers. Someone in this girl's dorm down the block, it happened to be somebody I knew. Uh Uh-huh. And I'm like, what the fuck, you're not Jack, where is he, what is he doing, where is my ID? Like, I am getting more and more enraged at every detail (laughs) I find out. I am like Hades from the Hercules cartoon where my hair just starts flaming red. So I'm already annoyed. She's like, yeah, he's here. He's not doing so good. He's uh, well, he's puking. I'm like, okay, that doesn't surprise me. But the little bastard still has my ID. Can I come over and get it? She's like, yeah, sure, you can come over and get it. So the room that Jack John is currently occupying space outside of is on the second floor. And this building has kind of a like old school southern construction where it right at the (laughs) entrance to the door, there's a big staircase that goes up like toward the middle of the second floor. So I get in. I, I call one of the girls that lives there to let me in and I walk upstairs I get about halfway up and I see a large, like full size trash can, like a big trash can and half of Jack. The upper half of his body is in the trash can where he has been vomiting. His legs are just sticking out the top. So I walk up there. I ask somewhat stupidly in hindsight, what the hell are you doing in there? And the answer that you gave me was not words. So I pretty much stopped uh, stopped trying for conversation at that point. I said, hey, you still got my ID. And as though it were being filmed by Judd Apatow, you just reach your hand in your pocket and stick it up out of the trash can holding my ID. <laughs> I just took it and went home. So that was, and told everybody else when they got back, I was like, yeah, I, I, I don't know what Jack's doing, but he's not coming back. So there was one less uh, opponent we had to worry about. I was the eventual champion of the night. I will have you all know, despite an like almost 15 minute long absence to deal with that whole <laughs> clusterfuck. So that's the story of the night. Jack threw himself in the trash where he belonged. A critical piece of uh, the lore of this podcast. It's also the night we termed uh, the phrase "wear idiot" because it was a full moon that night. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. That yeah, was that the was, origin uh, of the wear idiot. Yeah, it was a full moon, and I remember like I talked to you either the next day or sometime soon after. I was like, "What the fuck were you doing?" And you explained this long, stupid jaunt you had taken. And I was like, is it just because it's a full moon? Is Does it really make everyone stupid? Or do you just become incredibly stupid when there's a full moon out? 
which I decided, oh no, at some point he's been bitten by a were-idiot, and now anytime <laughs> there's a full moon, his IQ drops 100 points. It, it's fun. So, so you know, my, my initial plan was to go in and get food and come back and continue drinking and eat glorious food. Um, I had walked, and I saw that dorm, and I was like, what if anyone's in there? And I called one person, and they answered, and then I went in, and I never got my food. And then I ended up vomiting in a trash can and sleeping in a trash can because I was trash and that's where I belonged. In in the trash and in your vomit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, My favorite part is the 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 RA or the 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 house supervisor, whoever the fuck you want to call them, comes in and they knew who I was. Um and they were like, Is that Jack John? And everyone was like, Yeah, no, that's definitely Jack John. And well, she was that's like, half is, of John. And she was like, "Is he okay? Like, what? What's why? Why is he lying down in this trash can, uh, presumably vomiting?" And they were like, "Oh, he's just got food poisoning." <laughs> and the RA was like, "All right, yeah, cool. I don't sure. need to ask any more questions." That's the sign of a good RA <laughs> when they're willing to just let that one go. <laughs> like, all right, um, he just better not be there in the morning when I do rounds again. I love that she bothered to ask, are you okay, when your torso is completely <laughs> submerged in a trash can. I just remember hearing... There's only, and so I... reasons, there's only so many reasons you can be halfway in a trash can, and none of them are that you're okay. I remember like basically almost like blacking out that night, but I just remember an exasperated, is that Jack John? And it just being like... Yeah, please stop asking questions. <laughs> it's a full moon. You know the drill. You were just outside. You know what this is. He's in here every month. <laughs> Usually just digging through the garbage like a raccoon, but tonight he went a little extra. God, I mean, that, you know, not that there was a particularly well-behaved year that the three of us were at IC at the same time, but that one was the worst of all of them. Like, <laughs> oh by, like by far. Well, that's because Tom and I had way too much freedom. Yeah. And we frequently invited you guys to share that freedom. Yeah. And it just, it did not go well that there was a place that there wasn't like an RA on duty all yeah. the time where they could make sure we weren't doing anything stupid or illegal. Yeah, your RA was Doug. <laughs> And Doug, security either, Doug either tolerated us or loved us, one of the two, but he looked a blind eye a lot. Yeah. And the general direction of all of us. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think my favorite um, security Doug mo and we'll talk about this party again at some point, too, I'm sure. But there was one one particular party uh, around Christmas time. My favorite where. Story. Yeah, And Jack, by the way, at this point, is still several months shy of being old enough to drink legally. Which <laughs> it's means that same semester. It's that same semester. Yeah, which, which based on uh, our college rules, means that we are not even allowed to have alcohol in the apartment while he's there. Yeah. So, at some point... Again, we are just, it is wall-to-wall jammed. There's music oh, blaring. There's got to be 25 not, people in there. It could Too not many. be more obvious what's what was going on. Oh, there was more than 25. You think so? There was, I think there was probably 30. Jesus. 35, something like that. But, yeah. So, the security guard who uh, had an apartment <laughs> in the building, and, you know, as his 
his kind of trade-off for that was he also kind of functioned as our RA and made sure we didn't do anything too stupid. Comes down and knocks on the door to tell us to stop obviously having a party. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In the middle of the college apartment. And he knocks on the door, and who opens the door? And again, who let him do this? I, I cannot imagine. I just was... But Jack answers the door. Jack, who Doug knows does not live there, Were knows you? is not old enough. Is not knows is not old enough to drink. Weren't you in an so, outfit or something? So yeah. So there's a couple there. So yeah. So um, I was in the living room drinking uh, with Caleb Brown, and I had recently stolen his uh, Santa hat and Santa beard because he had one of those like knit like stocking caps that was both. And I was like, I'm drunk as fuck in your hat. This is hilarious. And there's a knock on the door and everyone does like that caveman SpongeBob, like freeze. Like, what do we do? Yeah. And I was drunk enough to, to say, I got this. And before anyone could tell me this is a terrible fucking idea, you fucking idiot. Don't open that door. I open the door like three inches and it's Matt and Doug. Okay. And I basically go, I'm so sorry. We'll be quiet. And I close the door <laughs> and it fucking worked. And they, yeah, they were su- they were such regular guys that they didn't go in and break up what was obviously happening there. They, they gave knew, us a chance to quiet down. They knew I was like nineteen or twenty, and they were just probably just like, "I don't want to do paperwork tonight. Do you want to do paperwork tonight? Fuck this. We'll just say they're going to be quiet now." <laughs> but yeah, I made sure to open the, the door like just enough to put my head in there with a Santa beard on. I'm so sorry. We'll, we'll be quiet. Also, from that story, um or at least the way you just told it, I would like to propose a new podcast segment. Uh, maybe this could be like for Patreon subscribers or something that is, I'm drunk and wearing your hat. This is awesome. <laughs> uh, Where I just get, actually, I've got a bunch of silly hats, so I could just give a different one to Jack John while he gets drunk and we film him every week. We'll, we'll open up a PO box and you'll just send us hats and every episode we'll wear a different hat. I've got a, I've got an Abe Lincoln. How many lice would you get doing that? You think? Oh, all, all of the lice. lice. <laughs> I've got an Abe Lincoln stovepipe hat, and I will tell you, it is very fun to wear. Very fun. I have a Viking helmet and a beer helmet somewhere, but those are the only fun hats I have. I have also got a Viking helmet. Yeah. Something, I think Alex has. I think yeah. Alex has one of these too. I also have one of the OG like cartoon propeller beanies. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, we both we both got those. Yeah. I used to have a Captain Morgan foam like pirate's hat, but I threw it away because it was incredibly uncomfortable. The Viking hat that that we have isn't super comfortable either. The propeller beanies. Well, you no, got... it's it's just it's just hard plastic. Yeah, yeah, they add a little bit of like foam in there, but it's not it's not the same. Yeah. Send us hats. Yeah. So yeah. There... So do we do we want to eventually? talk about some guys or do we want yeah, to we, keep we, doing hat material all we, night we probably the should. guys this week is apparently me <laughs> well yeah we should talk about some guys i'll say so there's um this can be sort of a recurring thing we do sometimes where you flesh out a little bit of the the lore that was a pretty critical piece but even from there i mean you know related to that there was you know rower punch night um uh, oh, all the stuff that happened at ruben's apartment including the the origin <laughs> of the ryan seacrest stuff that yes. people who know us. Oh yeah, we're we're gonna, we're gonna get into that. Everclear that, soup, man. Everclear point, soup. Um, there's Mac and Cheers night, as we alluded to, which also yes. included the uh, the legend of the purple V-necks. Yeah. There was um, Ruben Ruben's fr- Ruben's uh, electrocuting fridge. Yeah. There's the first time I blacked out, which was because of Cody. Yeah. We got we got <laughs> no, a lot. No, it was because of you. I didn't have a gun to your head. 
we've got a we've got a lot to get to eventually, and we will get to all of it. Um, but it's gonna be it's gonna be kind of like a serial episodic style. Um, I think that's the second one we've done, and there will be more to follow, and it only gets dumber from there. Um, At some point, we need to cut all of those stories together into one episode to yeah. make like our own dumbass Cimmerillion. Yeah, the dipshit supercut, if you will. Um, so yeah, with all that being said, um, hope you all enjoyed that little piece of lore. Um, but that's not what we're here for. We're here to talk about some guys. And we got some fun ones this week. It's going to be a little bit lighter. Um, you know, a lot of our episodes will feature at least something that's like gruesome or gross or violent. This one, really not the case. We got just some just some fun uh, kind of lighthearted topics to cover. Um, and so let's get to it. Uh, Jack, take it away. Yeah. So uh, I guess first off, the guys, but yeah. also more importantly... And, uh, yeah, you're up, conveniently enough, you're up first. So, uh, and, uh, we're making a little bit of, breaking a little bit more ground. This is not new ground, but further, um, further breaking some ground. Um, and we have our, I believe, second gal of the yes. podcast, do we not? All right, Jack, yes. well, who's your gal? The gal that I have is Elizabeth McGee. She was born in 1866 in May, uh, in Macomb, Illinois, funny enough. To parents Mary J and James K. McGee. If that second name is any uh, familiar to you, that's because James McGee was a newspaper publisher and actually accompanied Abe Lincoln all throughout his travels during Illinois in the 1850s during the Lincoln Doug Lincoln Douglas debates. Oh, that James McGee. Nobody knows who the fuck that is, dude. <laughs> I mean, you're both history nerds. You might know that. Not that deep into it. Yeah, Illinois history. Is I weird. Who cut Lincoln's hair or any of that shit? My historical knowledge is mainly what you hear on this podcast. That's fair. That's fair. Um, but anyway, so basically, she was born into kind of more like of an intellectual family. Her family was very um, kind of like conscious to like different going ons, and she was kind of like raised in that environment. So she became very interested in uh, not necessarily politics, but in kind of culture and news, and really kind of like being well read. Uh, so in the 1880s, they end up moving to DC where she ends up getting a job as a stenographer and she ends up actually, uh, getting her own patent, uh, that she published in, uh, in 1892 at the age of 26, she ended up making this, uh, contraption that made it easier to feed, uh, paper through typewriters. So she ends up getting that. She's one of the first women to get a patent. Uh, at that point in time, less than 1% of women were getting patents. So she was kind of like almost like a trailblazer in that regard. So nice. what year was this again? That she she did that button? in 1892. Wow. Yeah, yes. So not wow. an easy thing for a woman to do back then. I looked it up. I think it was like the early 1800s was the first time a woman had ever gotten a patent. So she wasn't the first. Uh, she was probably about like 70 years past that, but still very, very rare for that to happen, especially for a woman. Yeah, absolutely. Very impressive. Yeah. She was also active um, as a feminist. Uh, she was very outspoken about uh, women's rights. She uh, famously at one point in time, put an ad in the newspaper uh, essentially saying woman slave for sale, uh, equating that women essentially had no rights if they weren't, uh, in her words, purchased by a man in marriage. So she essentially tried to sell herself in the newspaper to just have a giant middle finger to society at the time. I bet that backfired at least a little bit because she probably got a disturbing amount of really gross responses. 
Say, I think I've seen seen a similar thing on Craigslist. <laughs> but she was she was very much, um, as it's pointed out, a very like like empowering like female icon. Even in the time, even though yeah. like a lot of what she was doing wasn't popular, it was still very very uh, important for women at the time. So I assume that this was like right around the turn of the twentieth century, like uh, late eighteen hundred. This yeah, that was the time when like women's rights were really. Um, like organizing into a movement like this was the era of like Susan B. Anthony um, and all like a lot of the original iconic uh, women's rights activists. So, but yeah, I mean, there's, there was huge pushback at the time, but, but this was a really, really important era um, for women's rights. Yeah. Really in the, I mean, women's suffrage was what, 1920. So really in the several couple decades leading up to that, there was a lot of, of mounting social tension. That's, one thing I think we don't talk about enough as far as great American conflicts, at least, was the 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 social tension that rose from from that proposition. Right. Yeah. Like most good, you know, like big social movements, it was not it was often not pleasant or and not even always peaceful. Um, but, abs- you know, of course, it needed to be done. Yeah. And and Maggie very much at the forefront, like I said, grew up in an environment where it was encouraged to talk about shit like this. So she's very like surrounded by people who will actually listen and she's not just like screaming into a void like she has people around her that are paying attention and are with her on that so she's very active she ends up um getting into something called georgism um or it's it's later called geoism but basically it's a, a idea of economics based on henry george where the idea is basically that land should be taxed not income so it's kind of uh distributing the idea that like everyone who's a landowner is essentially, you know, contributing, you know, land is a thing that everyone has access to and should have access to. So tax land instead of income and kind of uh, redistributing wealth that way. So uh, kind of a similar, you know, idea to the the current, you know, tax the billionaires ideology, but just, you know, it, there was a more firm divide among landowners and non-landowners then. So, you know, just kind of going about it from the other way. Exactly. And it was basically this idea that like, hey, you have this access to all this land. It's kind of impeding on everybody else. You should be doing something about, you know, having all of this fucking land. So uh, the guy, Henry George, he writes a book called Progress and Poverty, an inquiry into the cause of industrial depressions and increase of want with increase of wealth. It's a word full of a fucking book, but she ends up really, really loving this book. And it shapes a lot of how she thinks, which... Uh, as we said, um, Lizzie was very um, active in creating, so she ends up making a board game. Uh, she was an actress. She was uh, active in writing, so she was like, hey, I'm going to make a board game. And she ends up making the main topic of um, this story, the Landlord's Game. Hmm. Now, okay. she creates the Landlord's Game, and she creates two rule sets based on it. And basically, the first rule set is the single tax rule, or the prosperity rule, as it would later be called. And basically, it's a board game where everyone is trying to uh, accumulate property, but also sharing the wealth of uh, like getting that property. So basically, what you're doing is people are purchasing land, and then everyone is kind of gaining money off of that idea. And then basically, um, it wins when somebody essentially like doubles their wealth, and you know everyone kind of lives in this perfect, like almost like a book made out of 
or a board game made out of the book kind of like thing where she's like, hey, I'm just going to take Georgism and make it a fucking board game. So that's yeah, rule set that's, one. That's a very interesting premise. For, so this is basically like Monopoly, but the mellow kind. This is this there. is Monopoly where you yeah. don't punch your family members. So my, I'm, I'm guessing that in her mind, she's intending this to be like at least a little bit instructive. Um, yes. That there's sort of a social purpose for the board game that people can um, see how this is done. And maybe they're going to start getting the inkling. Maybe this is something we should try and recreate in real life. Right. See, so this is definitely starting to see why there aren't a lot of socialist board games. Yeah. Because <laughs> as intriguing an ideology as that is, this game sounds boring as fuck. Right. So what she does is she's essentially exact you're exactly right. She's making an instructional board game to kind of like teach these ideas and kind of show like, hey, everyone's kind of getting rich here. This is a great idea. Why don't we do this? So that's rule set number one. She also puts in a second rule set called the monopolist rule set. Mm-hmm. And the idea in the Monopolist rule set is to try to get as rich as possible and hoard all of the properties. And your idea is to drive people into bankruptcy and just accumulate and hoard all of this wealth. And so guess which one caught on with the American audience? Yeah, this is the Gordon Gecko edition, and apparently it sold pretty well. So she later said that the reason that she had made the second version um, is because this was kind of geared towards like kids and families, but her idea was basically like kids are like innocent and pure, and they're always kind of just like inherently looking out for each other and pointing out when things aren't fair. So like if you if you cheat in a board game against a kid, a kid is very likely to go, hey, that's not fair, and kind of like put into motion their ideas of like right and wrong. <laughs> but I keep doing it. Cody keeps beating kids in board games, and no one's gonna stop him. <laughs> oh, you think I'm good at Monox Monopoly? My boxing record's like eight and zero. So, so she creates the, the second rule, the Monopolist rule, and accidentally it catches on. Uh, people aren't seeing land grabbing as bad. Um, they're realizing that they can make a lot of money, like in the game, being dicks to everybody, and like they love that. So there's the tool rule set, two rule sets, and basically what's really cool about this is she ends up getting patents uh, for this game. So she applies for a patent in 1904, and she ends up getting it approved in 1906. And what's great about um, the patents that she did is this was basically the very first game that had a continuous board. So a lot of board games in this era started at point A and they ended at point B. Um, like your traditional, like, hey, I'm going to roll some dice, and after, like, ten moves, the game's over, and we all go home and be happy. Like, she can, creates like Candyland. Essentially a, exactly, Candyland, Life, all of those kind of games. God, where there's escalators and hills. Life, life is the worst board game. It, yeah, it really is. So she creates that, she gets a patent, and it's noted in a, a, an excerpt of a book I read that it's the first um, patent in board gaming. So she has that notch under her belt as well which is really cool. So she gets that. She ends up creating a, um, a, forming a company with other Georgists called the Economic Game Company in 1906. Hmm. Uh, it's out of New York, and that's how they're publishing this game. So she's self-publishing this game. And she ends up, you know, getting a little bit of traction with it, especially in the uh, northeastern part of the country. Um, kind of more educated folks are kind of grabbing onto this game. What ends up happening, unfortunately, 
is not a lot of people are buying the game. People are playing it with other people, and then they're going home and making their own copy of it. And that's where we see a lot of people essentially just like yeah. making home versions of this board game, which is that. popular. That is, a re- that is an incredibly ironic thing for her yeah. to be pissed about. What are you just <laughs> yeah. saying? Like, oh yeah, people are sharing this too much. God damn it. She, Poetic justice, I hate you. She did kind of hoist herself by her own petard on that, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's going okay, but it's not like she's not raking in money. She's just she's doing okay. And obviously with self-publishing, like she's spending more money producing the game than she is getting back in it, but she still has this game out here. She ends up taking the game to Parker Brothers in 1909. And they're like, look, this game is way too fucking complicated. It's a little maybe too political. It's never said directly that it was too political for them, but it's kind of like everyone looking at the subject matter and being like, yeah, no one's going to fucking touch that, actually. But the official uh, statement from Parker Brothers in 1909 was, the game is too fucking complicated. Yeah. But again, it's it's still doing well with intellectuals in the Northeast. Um, but again, the game is getting bootlegged everywhere. It, it's, 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 it's essentially a game at this point for like hoity-toity stuffy professors. Yes. It's basically, there was one article that I read that it was like, yeah, art, like professors were sh- like teaching this to their students and then the students were taking it and spreading it. But, I mean, they don't have money, so they're just making their own home games. And it's just like, you tell a friend and they'll tell two friends. Kind of like everyone has a home version of Monopoly. What ends up happening is she has to like refile for her patents uh, later. Um, she ends up getting them, and that's uh, when she refiles her patents that she kind of adds in a little bit more amendments and tweaks and kind of like spruces up the game and makes it a little bit more approachable. What ends up happening, though, around that time is a man named Charles Vohr ends up finding out about this game, and he takes it home, and he makes his own version. Except Charles is really, really infatuated with the second set of rules, the Monopolist rules. So he's a psychopath. Yes. He loves the idea of just like, fuck them all, I won kind of style gameplay. And he ends up making his version and calling it Monopoly. Or as it's also kind of called Finance. If you, I mean, I tell you, if you think American corporate culture is ruthless now, in the early, in the time between 1907 and like the early 1920s, Oh dear God! Yeah, I mean, yeah. there was the Rockefellers, there was Andrew Carnegie, there was all of these uh, barons of their various industries oh, yeah. that had a complete stranglehold on their, you know, the oh fuck, there was a, a bunch of other families that were that were involved in that that just got tremendously rich from that exact same kind of thing. But I mean, back then it wasn't nearly as regulated, and they were just next level psycho. Yeah, this so, was when yeah, really dark period of American history. This is when like there was an ongoing effort to put like antitrust laws into place and to break up monopolies because I mean at this point like we're inching back to that a little bit but like even now when there are certain giants of industry like there are no there aren't like true monopolies the way they were back then um and of course, the thing about having a monopoly is that when you hold literally all the power and all the resources, you can do whatever you want and nobody can stop you. So that's sort of the era that people were living in back then. Yeah. It's it's funny that you mentioned um, Rockefeller. It's heavily implied, but never exactly stated that the Monopoly Man is actually inspired and based off of him. Oh, neat. 
Um, but yeah, so basically, uh, Charles Duro gets um, gets kind of in with Parker Brothers, and they agree to um, publish his game. Uh, but first, what uh, Parker Brothers do is they end up gathering up all the patents of very similar like-minded games, and they end up uh, getting to our girl Lizzie, and they buy her patent for $500. And kind well, of... In hindsight, that seems like she maybe undersold it just a little. I mean, at this point, so this was in uh, 1932 to 1935, around where this area is happening. So it's been it's been about 30 years, and she'd had a couple other games, and she was kind of pitching them as well. Uh, but kind of what Parker Brothers ends up doing is they end up buying the rights of her game, and they distribute it for a little bit, and then immediately stop doing anything with it. Okay. So just follow me for a second here. Okay. So if they hadn't gone the legal way about getting the patent and then she sued them for it and they had to go to jail. They would have had to go to no, jail to go it. directly to jail and not collect $500. There's strike one for me. All right. It's the worst joke <sighs> I will ever make. God. Fucking damn it. <laughs> You're shitting me. <laughs> He's not coming back. We've got Freddy, that's fine. God! Not only was your joke terrible, you collect $200 when you pass it. God <laughs> fucking damn it! The premise didn't even hold I up! Know, I know the deal was for $500, so it only makes sense if I say it that way. That's Nothing worse than Cabbage! Well, no, no, no. You're no. not, you're not, <laughs> you're not digging yourself <laughs> no, out of that, that hole. that makes sense. Um, your cousins. Anyway, sorry, sorry to fly off the handle, but, you know... <laughs> sometimes we're going to need to record the rest of this episode next week and just it, give everyone a break. It, it's unhealthy to hold in your feelings. What what I loved is I can see Cody getting that joke out and I can see Alex getting visibly frustrated with each, <laughs> inc- like, with each word. Alex was just like, motherfucker's going to say it. God damn it. No, no, uh, we're, we're fine. We're fine. We can move on. <laughs> Alex just threw Freddy out of the room like a like a football. You're not going to hear this in post, but Alex just went on a 35 minute tirade, and <laughs> we had to cry and kumbaya and come back together. This is this is much later in the episode now. A lot more anti-Semitic stuff than I was <laughs> expecting, but you know. Well, like I said, it's unhealthy to hold in your feelings. <laughs> um. So so basically, Parker Brothers end up buying out Lizzie's original patent pushing her way off to the side, not even acknowledging her, and pushing uh, Charles DeRoe's Monopoly game with all the bells and whistles, essentially, that have been inspired by everybody else forward to now, which uh, it's it's luckily out now that, obviously, uh, Lizzie McGee had more influence in this game, but for a very long-standing time, it was always seen as Charles DeRoe's board game. Unfortunately, Lizzie would end up passing before she really got much credit uh, for Monopoly, as it were. She ended up passing away in 1948. Uh, aged 81, though, she lived a full life. But, yeah, the basically, the inspiration and the main person who invented Monopoly, a woman who had some radical ideas, and honestly, she wasn't that far off with how she was thinking, even in the 1800s and 1900s. Yeah. So I'm just imagining that after that transaction, when they finally paid her for the patent, 
She got halfway home before she realized it was Monopoly money. <laughs> so there, that's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> so my I'm big take, question... taking my strike away. No, that one redeemed me. That's a half strike takeaway. You still have one half strike. Fuck you, I give out the strikes. <laughs> I've got negative five strikes. How you like that, motherfucker? Worst strike calling than an MLB fucking... I think... Hold on. I'm no, Angel, I, no, I can... I'm Angel Hernandez up this bitch. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Angel Hernandez yeah. reference saves you, yeah. I, I started going there, and I was like, I can't remember the guy who's really terrible's name, and that's probably a good thing. Yeah, there's, Angel Hernandez yeah, is what I was thinking about. He's a guy in and of himself, by the way. We should maybe talk about him at some point. Yeah. So my big question to you guys is, you now get to add one thing to Monopoly... Either a piece, a space, a rule card, anything. You can add one thing to Monopoly. What are you adding to Monopoly? A bordello. <laughs> I'm thinking that's a good revenue producer. And also, it's just a really funny thing to put on a board game. Um, I think uh, an adult theater. Ooh. And people... So not... not... <laughs> yeah. People can go and uh, yeah, they can kind of yeah do whatever they want. Is whatever that like happens in the happens. first? Is that in the first couple of neighborhoods, or is that like an expensive neighborhood adult theater? What's the worst neighborhood in Monopoly? I think it's Mediterranean Avenue. Well, I don't like <laughs> Jersey. <Yeah. laughs> I'm not gonna say that. So uh, everyone, can, you can use your imagination. And um, in the interest of being a political, um, as the original intent, I'm going to design it in a way that somehow. Um, teaches people the merits of the Juchi ideology um, and see if uh, Kim Jong-un will, will throw a few uh, buckaroos my way for that one. <laughs> it will also be Monopoly money, though. Fuck! So, yeah. Everything's yeah, I mean, Monopoly that's... money. You gotta be careful how much time you spend in that adult bookstore or you also will go directly to jail and not collect $500. Yeah. Yeah. The owner of that store, though, is Dennis Rodman. <laughs> yeah lizzie mcgee yeah she sounds yeah and pretty you know both figurative and figuratively and literally she's pretty radical um definitely one of those you know really cool people in american history that we don't hear about and we should yeah all right so um great topic to start things off and um I think for our uh, our second, well, I guess really our first guy of the night, um, we now turn to Cody. Cody, who's your guy? So I am uh, delving back once again into the world of baseball. And my apologies for going a little bit baseball heavy throughout the first, you know, what is it, seven or eight? Eight now. Eight now number eight, episodes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, just because... Baseball is kind of particularly old timey baseball, which is the yeah. era we're going to be focused on. It's a gold mine. Is kind of like science and the old west in terms that it is just an absolute gold mine of lunatics, freaks, and drunks. Yeah, total freak show. That, yeah, it just it, it's like a carnival sideshow sometimes. Which, as we learned uh, in Alex's first gal episode, a lot of those barnstorming teams kind of were. Yeah. Yeah, that one was kind of a so, that one was kind of turning on its head because it was like the only normal person involved in old timey baseball, and she was basically ostracized for it. <laughs> so, my guy is a fellow named Ray Caldwell, um, one of the MLB players. You can find a fair amount of stuff on him 
Um, as far as being noteworthy for his ability as a player, he threw uh, one no-hitter in his career, had a ton of wins, um, played for a very long time, but was also, well, he was noteworthy for his off-the-field antics as well, as well as one big thing that happened to him on the mound that was not his no-hitter. I won't give too much away about that because I want you guys all to, to hear that story organically. So he was born in 1880 in uh, Corydon, Pennsylvania. Was incredibly talented, just naturally fantastic. Had a great fastball, a wicked curve, and threw maybe the best spitball in Major League history before they outlawed it. Yeah. Which that is was a, his signature yeah. pitch. The outlawing of the spitball, also a, a, a story that, that we may cover at some point. He was also a massive drunk, yeah. which continued to be a problem throughout his life. Right. Uh, he began his professional career in 1912 with the New York Yankees, went 17-9 and with a 194 ERA in 1913, probably the best year of his career. Um, this guy, I mentioned his drunkenness. His demeanor also was – he's just – he's what we call a real galoot. This dude is a is an absolute galoot, and that should tell you a little bit more about, you know, what, what kind of fella he was. A galoot, a lug. A lug. A goon. Yeah. So, in 1914, he was so frequently fined by his manager for drunkenness that he lost, like, a good chunk of his paycheck for the year. An oaf, I remembered another one. Yeah. Yeah, he's very oafish. This, I just imagine he's like Barney Gumble playing baseball. <laughs> in 1916... They actually played baseball. Yeah, yeah exactly. In 1916, he struggled somewhat on the mound due to a broken patella. Now, those of you who don't know what a patella is, that's your kneecap. Oh. This proves yet again, there is nothing tougher than a drunk galoot. Yeah. They feel nothing. Yeah. Nothing emotionally, nothing physically. They're like the fucking Terminator. You just, you can't keep these guys down. Jesus. Um, said he struggled on the mound. Um and then became somehow even less productive when he went AWOL in July, um, did not end up returning to the team until a week into spring training the uh, next season, which apparently is a thing you could do if you were good enough still not get kicked off the team entirely. I say, that's pretty baller. I mean, Rodman went to Vegas for like a week uh, while playing with the Bulls, and he got away with it. Yeah, but this guy missed half a season. Yeah. He wasn't pitching that well before it. So, um, pitched well in 1917, but was indicted on grand larceny charges for stealing a ring, mm. and almost simultaneously was sued by his ex-wife for alimony, which kind of makes me think it was real stupid to steal the ring, because I don't think he needs it anymore. In 1918, in August, now this was a, another fascinating thing that I hope we get to talk more about in podcast uh, on this podcast in detail because um, it's kind of a fascinating practice the way old baseball worked from a business perspective. But he left the Yankees in August 1918 to work for a shipbuilding company in order to avoid getting drafted. <laughs> so, like, See, in like, days, so like all great oafs, he is a draft dodger as well. Yeah. <laughs> See, in those days, baseball was such a huge phenomenon. Like, 
Imagine the MLB, the NBA, and the NFL all rolled into one. And that is roughly as much fanship as baseball got. And just baseball, the sport in general. So a lot of times those companies, they would have a company baseball team. It, yeah. it was like a big deal to the point where a lot of times they would hire professional baseball players and give them jobs where they didn't have to do anything. They just they literally were on the payroll just to play for the baseball team. And that was essentially uh, the situation with Ray Caldwell. So, like, imagine if Kevin Durant had bailed on the Thunder, but this time he went to play for, like, Starbucks or something like that. <laughs> don't even, don't even and, put well, that thought Seattle's, into the ether. That's not something well, that would be happening. If, if Seattle's getting a team, then that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, like, yeah, shout he out went to, to uh, play for... Shout out to Detlef Shrimp while we have a chance. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a guy. Yeah. Yeah, um... Yeah, so so like KD left for Starbucks and also was drunk the whole time. Um, the thing is, the Yankees still had him under contract and did not actually agree to let him leave. So they, <laughs> they didn't release him or anything. He just said, fuck you, I'm going to go work for this shipbuilding company. And they said, this piece of paper that you signed says that no, you're not. Um, instead, what they did was trading him to the Red Sox, which at that point was kind of like the American equivalent of setting your elders out on an ice flow and sending them into the ocean to die. Yeah. Um, back then they just trade you to the Red Sox. It was basically the same thing. The Red Sox cut him. And this is, I think my favorite tidbit of information I found throughout this whole thing. The reason the Red Sox released him is because they had a young up and coming star named Babe Ruth who was also kind of prone to trouble and they did not want Ray Caldwell around him. <laughs> like he was too shitty of an influence to stay on their team. As we know imagine, that, that worked out swimmingly for the Red Sox, that whole situation. Imagine <laughs> yeah. being too drunk to be around Babe Ruth. That's, that's an impressive that's, amount that's, of drunk. The guy, yeah, I mean that strat strategy obviously didn't work too terribly well, or maybe he'd have been ten times more. Maybe he'd have been like Ty Cobb if if uh, Caldwell had stayed around. Yeah, nobody needs that. No, one of him was too many. If you ask anyone who ever, um, yeah, I I guess they figured it would have turned into some like old timey buddy comedy, like <laughs> dude, where's my horse or something like that. Um, yeah, one one of Ty Cobb was too many pretty much everyone including babe ruth who ty cobb would not speak to or allow on hunting trips with him because babe ruth talked to black fans just yeah. a reminder ty cobb however bad of a guy you think he is he was even worse and the thing about that the thing that was really funny was ty cobb was a feisty little dude but babe ruth was just an absolute monster so i i like to imagine him just picking him up and punting him out of the stadium like that guy in the Smurfs. Yeah. <laughs> so he was released from the Red Sox. They said, we don't want you anywhere near our field anywhere. Um, he was picked up by the Cleveland Indians. And this is where the good part of his career really began. It, they were med uh, managed by legendary baseball player manager, Tris Speaker. Uh -huh. um, one of the great uh, folks in baseball history. If you're a big baseball nerd and know a lot about the history of the game, you are quite familiar with Tris Speaker. Um, he signed him to a rather unusual contract because Speaker had noticed that the vast majority of problems that he'd had in his career were caused by the fact that this dude just could not stop getting hammered. Yeah. Like, he just couldn't. So, 
here's the contract that Tris Speaker gave him, including the provisions for what his training would be. He gave him a schedule based on days of the week. So they pitched on three days rest back then, so they had a four-man rotation. He was to pitch. He was then required by his contract to go get drunk the day he pitched. <laughs> like it said specifically, you have to go get drunk after you pitch. If you don't, you will be fine. Then he gave him the next day to sleep it off. Then he's back at practice running sprints and throwing the next few days, rinse and repeat. How do I get this contract? I was going to say, that's the dream. Yeah. I'm just imagining the end of that contract. You're like Slurms McKenzie from Futurama. You're like, I'm so tired of partying. <laughs> I was going to say, I will learn a fucking knuckleball if, if I can get that deal now. I do wonder if some of the, the psychology that went into this contract was trying to make Caldwell feel like getting drunk was a chore. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, shit. Basically, Speaker's thought process seems to have been if we can schedule his drinking then we can kind of control it and at least get it to the point where he's not drunk when we need him to not be drunk. You are, you are conceding that he is going yeah. to be drunk, which right. is, is wise because whether you want to or not, he is going to be. There's no point yeah. in stopping it. So. The, the, yeah. Randy Analytics, and like, look, he's hungover for two days afterwards. If we can schedule that right next to a start and like plan drinking right after, we're fucking golden. It's like advanced money ball shit. I love it. Now that yeah. just makes me think we need we need saver metrics for drunks. This guy was like a this guy was like putting up like six war per year. He was he was he was on an MVP his, caliber pace. His beers yeah. above replacement is next level. <laughs> no, wines above replacement. Oh, there you go. Huh? That's, that's, keep war. That's, that's better word. That's better wordplay. But I don't. I don't. I can't imagine Ray Caldwell as a wine guy. He does not seem like it. No, I. I... I imagine that everyone who drank back then either drank terrible beer or like something akin to Everclear straight out of an unlabeled bottle. Like did anything you read specify what what his drink of choice was or was it just was it just kind of whatever? Um I think he was a gin guy, but don't oh, wow. quote me on that necessarily. I think he was a gin guy. That was a big thing back then. I am also yeah. a gin guy. So, respect. Yeah, I, love, I love gin. Yeah. Game recognized game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So his first game from Cleveland is what really makes his reputation and is largely the reason we still talk about this guy. So he's pitching a fantastic game. All right. He's got the win basically sewn up. He is two thirds of the way through the ninth inning. One batter left. And then suddenly the storm that has been threatening to hit all day finally rolls in. And this is back when if it was raining heavily, they didn't automatically cancel the game. Like, rain, they would play through. So there was some thunder off in the distance. But again, this is a different time. However, their luck only holds out for so long. Eventually, lightning strikes directly in the infield. Like I said, one out to go. Lightning has just hit the infield. The players all felt it. They hit the deck. The catcher said he just grabbed his mask and hucked it as far away from him as he could because he didn't want anything metal on him. Um... However, they needn't have worried because the lightning bolt struck Ray Caldwell directly in the chest. <laughs> oh, thank God. <laughs> just. And I imagine it was like Bugs Bunny where he just becomes a skeleton for a second. <laughs> so you're saying his, uh, his on-field performance was electric that day. Ha-ha. <laughs> That's right. No. No. 
Yeah. <laughs> this is uh, actually one scenario in baseball where if they still did this to this day, you really want to be Jose Altuve. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's three feet tall. Um, So Caldwell is, of course, unconscious and laying flat on his back because <laughs> yeah. he just got hit in the chest by lightning. One teammate claims, now this is disputed because of some scientific testimony later on, one teammate claimed he went over to touch him and got shocked after this happened. One thing that is confirmed by everybody there, though, was his chest is literally smoking. Like, it's got smoke coming out of it. Jesus. So this is, there is kind of like a Bugs Bunny aspect to this. I mean, that is, in a cartoon, that is what would happen yeah. after you get struck by lightning. Yeah. Well, apparently uh, art imitates life sometimes because that also happens yeah. to people, evidently. Yeah. <laughs> so his chest is smoking and everyone, you know, he hasn't moved. I mean, everyone's like kind of afraid to touch him, but they're like, he's fucking dead, right? Like he's got to be dead. He's not moving. He's smoldering. He just got hit by lightning. Surely he's dead. And they just don't really know what to do. So they stand around for a minute. And then he groans and starts to get to his feet. The audience, I imagine, is something he has a fair amount of experience with doing that. I would imagine. So the audience also groans at seeing that he is in fact alive. <laughs> yeah, Malort, never again. <laughs> um, so everyone's just like, "Holy shit, he's alive!" You know, that's cool. And all of his teammates are like, "Yeah, we'll help you get to the hospital." And he goes, "I've." got one more out to get what the hell are you talking about hospital we got a game to finish here so eventually somehow he convinces tris speaker to let him get this last out so he has just been struck by lightning he has now convinced his manager to let him pitch to the last batter and his direct quote was uh he told he told the uh, shortstop ray chapman give me the dang ball and turn me toward the plate <laughs> Again, nothing tougher than a drunk galoot. Right. You Jesus. can't kill these guys. Right. They're like they're like big gin soaked cockroaches. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah, I I don't know why the idea of him being facing the wrong way makes me laugh so much. He's just completely like, blind, but he believes in his pitch so much. He's like, look, if you if you angle me, I can get it there. His curve's really sharp today. Too bad he's throwing it to second base. Uh but he gets the final out. The last guy takes a fastball. He does barrel it up, but he hits it right to third. Um, so he gets the ground out. He throws a complete game shutout in his first game as an Indian, despite being struck by lightning. Jesus. So uh, his quote later on, because obviously the newspapers are all trying to talk to this guy because like he got hit yeah. by lightning and shit. And what he said about how it felt was he said, it felt like someone came up behind me with a board and hit me on the head. <laughs> Spoken Which by a really... man who's had that happen to him before. Exactly. That is very specific. I feel like he's almost <laughs> got to be speaking from experience there. If, if you're a drunk um, and, and nobody's ever come up and hit you in, with a board, are you really a drunk? <laughs> that's that's an eternal question that we'll, we'll be trying to answer long after we're all gone. It's kind of like one um, of our, I'm not going to say his name, but one of our, our local... Uh, town characters where we're from uh had a problem with his scalp at one point and we 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 all like he's an older gentleman so we all thought like well he's got like uh some kind of like fungal thing and his claim was like no it's not a fungal thing some guy uh 
whip my ass to the bar and drag me through the, the parking lot across the gravel. And we're all like, well, we're pretty sure he's lying, but also that is something that would happen. So, um, yeah. not entirely out of the realm of possibility. So the lightning experts, they did some scientific research into this uh, in later years. ESPN did a really cool article on this guy, and uh, they talked to some lightning experts. And they think that because the bolt hit in such a crowded area in the middle of the city, which is a fairly rare thing, like that doesn't happen very often. Yeah. They said some of the other things in the area likely absorb some of the voltage, like the dugout and the bat boy, you know, all that stuff. So he later he later that season threw a no hitter against the Yankees. So nice little revenge story for him. Um, no word on whether he threw harder after that. I think that would have been a really cool story. Yeah, I was gonna ask: Is Lightning a performance enhancing drug? Did that give him better pitching ability? Back then, there was no such thing. That's um, but he struggled uh, a lot with both pitching and drinking. The next season, uh, he was released. That was pretty much the end of him in Major League Baseball. He bounced around the minors and farm teams for a while, made quite a bit of money, and then eventually just retired. He went on to to bartend and manage a bar, um, which is the greatest profession for someone who is a raging drunk. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He died in 1967. This guy lived like three times longer than his lifestyle should have allowed him <laughs> yeah, to. Yeah, I was waiting for that. Jesus. Like, between the lightning strike and liver failure, this guy, I just, I don't know. Somebody up there liked him. Did he at least um, die in an, in an interesting way? Did he get run over right. by a trolley car or something? No, I think he just died. I, I think he just killed over one day. The 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 death report just says, just died. <laughs> That's what it should be instead of, like, natural causes. Just died. Just died. Ran out of juice. <laughs> This battery's dead. Yeah, it just uh, just happened. This gin bottle's finally he just, empty. He just stopped living. <laughs> his, his brain just shut off. I want my that's yeah. what I want my tombstone to say. He just stopped living. <laughs> so you seem to be missing the obvious gunshot wound here. So I'm starting to wonder about your qualifications as this county's coroner. Oh, I don't work here. <laughs> I'm just the pizza guy. I'm just here to tell you he stopped living. <laughs> Oh, God, that's the creepiest pizza guy ever. <laughs> pizza guy who skulks around the morgue? That's that's two strikes. You ordered a meat lovers with extra mortality. I think we're not going to allow you back. <laughs> I think we're just going to come out to you, to the car, and uh, we'll deal with it that way. <laughs> I didn't know Tombstone delivered. hey oh, Okay. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to get upset again. Right. I'm not happy about that either, but like it can't, I would have been so upset for the rest of my life if I'd had to have that pop into my head and not say it out loud and just live with that. I I don't want to sit on that forever. So, but yeah, that's basically uh, the story of Mr. Chapman and, or uh, Ray Caldwell, sorry, Mr. Chapman, the, uh, the shortstop, obviously who he told to point him in the direction of the plate. That's the story of Ray Caldwell. And, um, I guess that brings me to my big question for the two of you. If you played professional baseball and you could have one ridiculous provision in your contract, what would it be? Hmm. 
boy, I got a lot of a lot of a lot of bad things I could do with this. <laughs> I am going to say that um I am allowed to I'm allowed a free pass to bean somebody. Um and uh if I have to negotiate it down, um, I'll just, uh, I'd narrow it down to, I, I get one free pass to bean somebody, but it has to be a cup. I can live with that. Or Alex Bregman. Or Alex <laughs> Bregman. Yeah. All right. Okay. Jack. I'm going to take a little bit more of a wacky approach. Uh, I get to pick once per season. I get to pick a new location where practice is held. And I'm picking, like, we're having practice at the strip club. Like, full-on, like, bats and balls practice at the strip club. See, in a similar vein, but in a much worse one for the audience and everyone involved, you could have just said, like, I get to pick one game a season where I can pitch and I don't have to wear pants. I thought about that. I, I thought about just, like, look, I get to hang out all game, and you're not pulling me early. <laughs> I'm just gonna be. I'm just gonna do this game naked. I You're not to... pulling me. I'm pulling me. <laughs> oh God! Actually, Even worse. I'm gonna amend mine. Um, I'm going to say there's one game per year where I get to write all of the material and dialogue for the broadcasters. That's a good one. That's Ooh. a fun one. And see, you can get as absurdist as you like with it. You could just be like, before every game, I require one kitten. <laughs> Don't get the kitten back, tell and you I choose what to do with it. It's for. I'm going to tell you why, what it's for or why I need a new one every day. We get into two months of the season, so uh, how are all those kittens you're taking? Huh? <laughs> how are they? <laughs> and the, the, the answer could be, how would you be? I don't know. <laughs> the answer could be literally anything, but no one wants to ask it. Is this some kind of trick question or something? Don't worry about it. Look. It's it's in the contract that I do not have to answer you right now. Or you could be like, I get to bring my blow up doll around the clubhouse, but you all have to pretend it's my wife. <laughs> at least once per season, you have to put a blow up doll in at the DH, and everyone has to pretend it's real. <laughs> Watch it draw. All right, walk. good answers both. <laughs> good answers both. All right. Well, uh, yeah, another fun one, and. Um... Looks like I'm up next, and keeping in the theme of fun, um, we're going to go from a couple different worlds of entertainment, from the uh, tabletop game world to the baseball world, and now we will go to the fun, fun world of movies. And so for my guy, <clears throat> everyone talks about what it takes to be the best. Um, how do you get to the top of your game? Less discussed, but perhaps a better question what does it take to be the worst? Especially in a world like the movie world, <clears throat> where most, you know, like low-budget, really crappy efforts at filmmaking will never get wide notoriety, because why would they? Um, at local, or they'll, they'll stay local at best. Um, <clears throat> the exceptions to that tend to be things like Tommy Wiseau's The Room, which at least suck in an interesting way. So maybe the Or big... Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor, which just sucked. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that just sucked. That it was unfortunate <laughs> that that one got the notoriety that it did, but it was. It's hard to make Pearl Harbor worse, and he somehow did. Um, so I guess the bigger question here, 
for a film that has practically no budget, it sucks but in a way that's not interesting in the slightest, and filmed and screened in the absolute middle of nowhere, how can a film like that possibly become well-known? Well, to answer that question enters our protagonist, Harold P. Warren, or as he goes by, Hal. So, my assessment of Hal throughout this story, it's a little up and down. There's certain things he did that aren't very cool, but other things he did that are cool. I think I give him a passing grade overall. But he is <laughs> he's just a guy. I mean, he's a guy. He fits the exact mold of a guy. Um, he's an odd duck. Yeah. So, to start his story uh will pick things up in the uh early to mid 60s um he was not a filmmaker by trade um he for his day job sold insurance and fertilizer and what i like about that is that means that he is literally a bullshit salesman um uh-huh. and God i damn it i like to imagine him um yeah that's very that's our new yorker style joke <laughs> um <laughs> But I, I, I kind of like to imagine him at this time um, as being something like Paul Lynn's character in Bye Bye Birdie, if anybody gets that reference. Yeah. Uh, just That's a... going deep into the bag there, but yeah, you, I think you nailed it. <laughs> yeah. In, a, in his spare time, he was heavily involved in the local theater scene. Now, local theater guy is definitely a type of guy. Oh, um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Hal Warren, he fit that, that archetype like a glove. Um, so he mostly did local theater stuff, but he got a little bit of a break. Um, <clears throat> there was a TV show in the early sixties called route 66, um, that they came down to, uh, Warren lived in El Paso, Texas. Um, and they came down to film some stuff in the El Paso area. And like often is the case, they'll do a casting call for people who just want to do a walk on role, like non-speaking part. And Hal Warren was one of these people. Um, I've not looked, I've not tried to track down the episode that he appeared in, but, um, it was through this, while they were filming it, <clears throat> he managed to befriend the the head writer of this show, a gentleman by the name of Sterling Siliphant. Um, Siliphant was a legit, legit writer. Later in the 60s, um, just a few years after this, would actually win an Academy Award for his screenplay for uh, the fantastic movie In the Heat of the Night. Um, he created the TV show Perry Mason. He wrote for The Towering Inferno. I mean, in the 60s, this was a legit, legit uh, screenwriter who somehow managed to yeah. befriend this complete goofball Hal Warren uh, when he was filming in El Paso. I he always when I hear about Hal Warren he reminds me of oh who's this is our second Simpsons reference who's the the real luckless guy on the Simpsons oh uh, you know what I'm talking about oh, he's oh, got yeah. like fifteen different jobs but he's terrible at all of them yeah, yeah. Oh, he's, oh, he's the lawyer who's shit yeah oh fuck um. Um, I'll, I'll let you marinate on that one. Um, okay. Yeah, it's not super important. We remember. Yeah, Everyone knows who we're talking about. Yeah, Lionel Hutz. So that's it. Yeah. So Sterling Siliphant, um and Hal Warren were getting coffee one day when they were in El Paso, and somehow during the conversation, um, Warren makes the claim that it cannot be difficult to make a horror film. Um, this is, of course, an absurd thing to think, even at the time. <laughs> Um, and I guess the conversation escalates to the point where they bet on it. Um, he makes a bet with Siliphant that he could make a horror movie all by himself, um, start to finish. Siliphant takes him up on that because, again, that is an insane thing to think. Um, and so before he even you leaves... You notice he didn't say he could make a good one. No, and thank goodness <laughs> he, he did not. He could make one. Um, 
So before he even leaves the coffee shop, Warren uh, starts writing a script on uh, the napkin that he was using, starts writing a rough outline. And this script, when completed, would go on to be his magnum opus, a little film called Manos, The Hands of Fate. And yes. for, for, for those of you in the audience who have seen this movie, your heart just sank. <laughs> um, <laughs> my th- my, so before we go any further, my theory is that Warren was actually just looking for an excuse to do this um, and just kind of <laughs> started the conversation with Siliphant to like give him a backstory for it. <laughs> He just had Manos, the hands of the fate, rattling around in his head for years and thought, if I can get this on screen somehow, I will be the greatest director of all time. Yeah, I, I think the dude just wanted to attempt to make a horror movie um, out of, you know, pretty much completely on his own. But because that's a, a completely bonkers thing to do, you know, he had to give himself a reason. I, that is my theory as to what this was. But in any event, Sillifant took him up on it. So, um... 1966 is when this movie is shot and screened. Um, as for the production of the movie, I mean, really, the short version is, um, for all intents and purposes, there really wasn't any. Um, he <laughs> was able to scrape together $19,000 um, in t- today's money. That's the equivalent of 150000 which sounds like a lot. And, I mean, it is to you, like any of the three of us, that would be a life-changing amount of money. But the thing is, making a movie is incredibly expensive. And even at the time, that was not nearly enough, you know, to to do a good job. Because you have to get equipment and hire all kinds of people and so on and so forth. How did somebody with essentially no background get people to jump on this? Where the fuck did he get this money? Well, I mean, the thing is, the people that he got to do it were not people that anybody else was asking to do this kind of stuff. Well, so, more, I mean, yeah, people more, that were just people that just really needed to be in a movie, basically. Well, as as for how he got other people involved, we'll get to that. Um, I don't know where the money came from. He may have just been independently wealthy. I mean, you know, he was a successful insurance and yeah. fertilizer salesman. I guess that, that could be a lucrative business. Yeah, but I just career path. Shit. That, that also like. That's just funny to me on the face of it, because he's walking in in a suit and whatever to sell insurance to some, you know, corporate lawyer all the time, just absolutely reeking of cow shit. <laughs> um, What's that smell? Success. So as for the cast of the movie, um, they were all just other local theater actors that he knew. Um, one of the there was one like whole family that was involved. Um, the guy who played the evil master. Um, his daughter played uh, Hal Warren starred in the movie as well, of course. Um, and uh, the the little girl who played his daughter in the movie was uh, the daughter from this family. So they're just people he knew. And also he also uh, he hired some women from a modeling agency. Um, so, we didn't see the air quotes, but we heard them. Um, in and, the 70s, modeling agency was a different kind of thing altogether. <laughs> The finest Sears catalog women starred in this production. <laughs> so uh, here is a, a somewhat uncool thing that he did. Although in fairness, these people could have said no. Um, he couldn't. He didn't have enough money to like pay these people wages <laughs> for filming this. So basically, all he could do was he said, "We'll split all the profits that the movie makes." Oh no! Um, and we'll do it that way. <laughs> 
See, um, I don't think that's too terrible as long as the other people involved know what they're getting into. I mean, they agreed to it. And again, these are not professional actors. Um, probably the, the, the models would have gotten screwed more than anything else. But there were... Sure. But I mean, e even if you're just paying them scale, that's still way more money than he had in the budget. So it was it was either yeah. do it this way or don't do it, basically. So he, uh, yeah, as to whether he was able to fulfill any of these promises, we will get to that eventually. Um, the location it was all shot on the ranch uh, of a guy named Colbert Caldwell. How he managed to finagle that, Caldwell was a lawyer who shared an office floor with Hal, and he basically just asked him if they could do it, and I guess he thought it sounded neat, so he let him. Uh, most of the movie equipment... I, I would let somebody shoot Manos the Hands of Fate at my ranch. Yeah. I think that'd be a fun weekend. So most of the equipment um, had to be rented. Um, that's all he could afford, which meant that he had to shoot all of this as quickly as they possibly could. And again, as someone who has seen this movie multiple times, you can tell. Um, <laughs> the, the main camera that they shot it on was a 16-millimeter Bell & Howell camera that had to be hand-wound, which meant that they could only shoot 32 seconds of footage at a time. Um, no, again, I... you can tell. There's a lot of very that abrupt is... cuts. Oh, my God. I... I never knew that specifically, so that makes a lot more sense. But I that had to be just the most annoying day of your life if you're a cameraman. So it ends up just looking like a shitty French New Wave film where there's just cuts everywhere abruptly. Yeah, yeah. If Ingmar if Ingmar Bergman had made it, they'd say it was revolutionary. <laughs> but so they just needed more French people and smoking, and it's an art house film. <laughs> if if you watch the movie. This is something that you can definitely pick up on. Uh, none of these sound effects or voices were live because they didn't have good enough equipment. They dubbed all of it over later. Um, uh, the woman who played his wife, Diane Mari, was one of the, the models he got from the agency. Um, this was kind of an uncool thing that he did. He actually, thinking that it would build publicity for the movie, signed her up for a regional beauty pageant without telling her. And didn't mention it until they'd actually accepted her into it. Jesus. She's also said that he kind of hinted around wanting her to go topless in a scene. And then when she said no, he was like, I was just a test. I was testing you. So that part was a little uncool of him. Jesus. See, I mean, I feel like since that's a legit thing you can do as a director. Yeah, it's way less creepy if you're just like, hey, would you be topless in this scene? And then you give yeah. her the chance to say no. And then you say, okay, that's fine. And then you keep, that's how normal people do that. And I actually know the scene that he asked about, and it actually would have made sense for it to be, it was not necessary, which is why, you know, they were, they were fine without that happening. But, um, so the cast, they, again, not professionals, they all had day jobs. Um, and so this, the night scenes of this movie, they weren't filmed on a set or in a studio. They actually had to film them at night. And like the rest of their equipment, they did not have good lighting equipment. Um, it covered a very small space and attracted a ton of moths, which you can also see as you watch the movie. Um, all the that night scenes are my... in a very small space, and there's moths flying around all over the goddamn place. <laughs> that is my favorite thing about Manos Hands of Fate. I'm a connoisseur of terrible horror movies. Manos, just straight by itself, is still a little much for me to handle. But the moths crack me up every time. So the movie itself, as, as I mentioned, I've seen it more than once. Um, the movie itself is mostly unremarkable. I mean, it, it's more striking for how boring it is. Um, the plot, best as I can sum it up, is that 
a man, his wife, their young daughter, and their little dog get stranded in BFE West Texas um, because their car breaks down. And for the night, they have to stay at this strange like hotel bed and breakfast type thing that they just roll up on. Um, the implication is supposed to be that uh, the place is a hub for like satanic rituals. Um, and a bunch See, of weird stuff the, happens. The thing, the thing that really cracks me up about that is that's a fairly common setup for a horror movie, sure. but it's always in a way more impressive house. Like it's always a castle or like a hotel or, and they're just at somebody's fucking house. Yeah. Like that makes it yeah. really funny. Yeah. I'm um, picturing a manor, but I know it's just going to be like a small ranch house. It is at best a ranch house. Yes. And that's the, almost exactly what it is. In the film, um, the little dog escapes and then they find it dead, unfortunately. And the family realizes something's up and they have to try and figure out, um, as things get progressively weirder and weirder, they have to find a way to escape from the sadistic master and his, uh, his concubines. Because if you think that this movie wouldn't have concubines, you are sorely mistaken <laughs> and are not getting Manos the Hands of Fate. Uh, as well as, finally, his the master's strange caretaker, Torgo. Torgo <laughs> love fucking is the oh real God, star. Is the Torgo is the real star unintentionally this movie. Um... He is a weird little bearded man with an inexplicable voice inflection. The, so the idea of Torgo is supposed to be that he's a satyr, like a, a half goat, half man, like the kind of character that would guard the entrance to hell, which is kind of what it's implied is going on here. So I think that explains the voice because the, the, the way he does his voice, I think it it's kind of how you would what would happen if you told a guy talk like a goat would talk, but you're a human. It's, it's kind it's of like bleeding. super shaky. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, like, it winds uh, well, up go sounding and, shaky. Well, go and get you set up in your room soon. It, that, that's yeah, pretty he much winds what it up is. Just, yeah. He just sounds like he's jerking off. He doesn't sound like a goat. <laughs> yeah. Um, like just try to bat every time you would pronounce an A, just keep bang. So the other problem with, uh, with the execution of the character of Torgo, and this is the part most people are familiar with. So one of the, the few pieces of legit costume design that they have in this movie, someone gets the idea to construct like these attachments for his legs. And the idea was it would like make the backs of his, of his upper legs jut out. That way it would look like his legs were pointing backwards. Like, uh, you know, like, like a hoofed animal might. You know, it would make him look like he had goat legs, but and I and I don't know why when they when he walked up wearing this thing, nobody caught this. But the problem was he put them on backwards, and nobody really noticed or said anything. And so in the movie, he is wearing them backwards, so they jut out forwards. So instead of a goat man, he just looks like a weird little guy with like freakishly huge thighs. Like he like he's wearing the world's worst fitting jod purse, basically. <laughs> <clears throat> Torgo is played by one of the local theater actors named John Reynolds. And I mean, he, of all the people who are in it, he really plays it up like a local theater actor. And I know I said that this would be a, a uh, fun topic and everything else is, but I will get one dour note. The only really sad story to come out of this, John Reynolds committed suicide between the filming and the screening of Manos, the Hands of Fate. So he unfortunately never saw it. Um, oh, no. Which is well, know. I mean, if he if he hadn't killed himself before he saw it, he might have <laughs> afterwards. Um, so the movie itself, it's just it's 
I mean, it's stupid, but it's more dull than anything. Both the action and the appearance. It doesn't even look interesting in the slightest. Um, in particular, there is an insufferably long intro. Um, like, ten minutes of just, like, shooting scenery of, like, uh, you know, highways and the desert. Where just absolutely is nothing is happening. And what's been um, surmised from that is that that was supposed to be an opening credit section but that uh hal warren just forgot to add the credits <laughs> so there's just this weird long <laughs> intro um <clears throat> the sleaziest scene of all of them uh is one where you know completely needlessly um the concubines they all get in a cat fight um which, apropos of nothing even the cat fight is not interesting he finds a way to make that boring as well um there's this weird running series of scenes also is completely apropos of nothing where there's this, the police keep rolling up on and finding this couple, this young couple who is making out in a, uh, uh, convertible. The reason we found out later why those existed is, uh, the woman in that couple was one of the models he hired and she was supposed to be one of the concubines, but she hurt her ankle and couldn't do the cat fight scene, but he wanted to get her into the movie anyway. So he just gave her a few scenes that had nothing to do with anything. Um, the luckiest PA ever. <laughs> Just like, hey, we need someone to make out with this model for like five minutes for for several takes at a time. <laughs> um, so the 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 film is completed and um, it premieres at the Capri Theater in El Paso. Um, and now this is a cool thing that Hal Warren did. Um, he decided to make the event not all about himself. He actually made it a charity um, where all the funds would go to donate um, to a local charity that supported people with cerebral palsy. So that was a cool thing that he did. Um, in spite of it being a charity event, he did want it to have, like, a big movie premiere feel. The problem is that, you know, as you can tell, every other thing involved in the movie is cheap and shitty. And so you <laughs> kind of have to manufacture that. Um, so he did arrange for one spotlight. So they had a spotlight. And he arranged for a limo so that he could do, uh, like, the red carpet treatment for all the actors who were in it. But he could only afford to rent one. So what they had to do, um, all the actors just waited um the next block over and the limo just had to keep going around and getting them <laughs> one by one uh, <laughs> oh my god so they they had the premiere and um most of the actors just thought it was all funny because like they could tell how ridiculous it was and even on the set like the, the, everyone involved was really tickled at how amateurish all this was um and in an anecdote that is funnier than than anything in the movie um, after, after they announced that the working title was Manos, the Hands of Fate, um, and the, the people involved in the production saw how, saw how cheap the production was, their joke behind Hal Warren's back was they would call it Mangoes, the Cans of Fruit. <laughs> <laughs> I love that See, so that much. Sounds like the, that sounds like the kind of stupid shit I would come up with. <laughs> yeah, that would be a strike on this podcast. Um, yep. <laughs> Now, although pretty much everyone had a good time at the premiere, there was one exception, which was poor Jackie Naaman Jones, who is the little girl who played uh, Hal Warren's character's daughter in the film, and what she was upset about. As I mentioned before, all the voices were dubbed. Um, there were two problems with this as far as Jackie Naaman Jones was concerned. One, they did not tell her this. 
two, they did not use her voice to dub it over. It is an adult. Oh, no. It is an adult woman trying to sound like a child. And so she goes in and like she's on the screen, but her voice is not in, in, anywhere to be found. And she got so upset that she cried during the premiere. Um, oh no! Poor kid. So the aftermath of this is um, Warren's comments was, um, I think I did. I think I just put out the worst movie ever made, but I'm proud of it. <laughs> Um, he, he, had, he had a great sense of humor about it. He, he was under no, no delusion he, he, that any of this was good. No, he set out to make a movie and he made a movie. That's mic drop. That's it. Precisely. It. That, was, that was more important. He won his bet with Sterling Siliphant. Um, so after the premiere, it was only ever shown at like some random drive-in theaters in West Texas and New Mexico. And even then only a handful of times. Um, now, Getting back to whether any of the actors were compensated, um, what we can take from this is that even in these this practically non-existent movie budget, it still didn't crack crack even, which makes sense if it was only shown a handful of times. So it didn't have money yeah. to pay the actors, but this is a cool thing. He did make good with two of the actors involved in the movie um, in his own way. Um, Jackie Naaman Jones, the little girl, he made good with her by uh, he bought her a new bicycle. Um, as payment nice. for her role. <clears throat> and the dog was played by Jackie's family's dog. And to compensate the dog and to kind of pay some respect to the family, since they were all involved in the movie, he bought a large quantity of dog food. <laughs> so the two most important actors, he made good with them, even though he wasn't able to compensate any of the adults. <clears throat> Warren. Well, I mean, that's, that's a bummer, but yeah, I mean, what, what could he possibly have done? Yeah. Really? So Hal did write a second movie script, a film that um, the script was called Desert Bikers. And he approached some, uh, some uh, like he wasn't going to try and do it himself again. He did a approach some studios. Um, and unfortunately, nobody had any interest in it, which I think is a damn shame because I would love to know what Desert Bikers was. I mean, I'm I'm guessing there are bikers in the desert. I mean, that's just that's just uh, a wild wild speculation. But it's just 120 minutes of biking montages that happen to take place I mean, in the desert. I it's got to be tough to get a studio to take you seriously when you have exactly one movie credit on your list and it's Manos, yeah. the Hands of Fate. <laughs> Because they're either not going to know what the hell that is, or even worse, they're going to know exactly what it is, and they're going <laughs> to kick you out of the office immediately. Well, like, you know, during this time, like, Ed Wood was a director who made a whole career out of making crappy movies, but again, they were crappy in an interesting way. Manos was not. Yeah. Um, so Hal Warren passed away in 1985. Most of the film's notoriety has come posthumously. The uh, path of the film reel is still unclear, Um some people have pieced together it may have belonged to some local TV station somewhere that showed it once and then got sold. Um, in the 80s, as the home video market really starts to boom, um, a little cottage industry within that is public domain suppliers who get a hold of public domain movies and will pass them around to various studios and uh, TV networks for whatever they want to do with it. Uh, Manos um, was uh, public domain. Now, you may be wondering... You know, in the late 80s, how can a film that only came out 20 years before that, in 1966, uh, be public domain? The reason why is because prior to 1989, American law required that films to be copyrighted needed to have a copyright notice filed. 
and um, very much in character, Hal Warren just uh, didn't do that. <laughs> um, either he either he neglected to do it or he just didn't care, which I wouldn't have blamed him for. Um, so from the moment that came out, he never owned that movie. <laughs> now, something that he did that was kind of interesting, he did for some reason register the script in the Library of Congress. Um, <laughs> and later on, when the when the film became a cult hit for reasons I'll get into, his Hal's son was actually going to challenge um the copyright standing on that ground and it would have been a completely novel legal issue like it, that particular issue had never been litigated and hasn't since um but Hal Warren's son apparently the chip off the old block thought about doing it but then just never got around to it so we still don't know <laughs> so one of these public I thought domain... he was gonna I thought you were gonna say he made a terrible movie about it um so one of these public domain suppliers um sent it along with a box um, of other reels offered it up to Comedy Central. Um, Comedy Central took them in, and it's at this point when the box gets sent to um, a gentleman by the name of Frank Conniff. Frank Conniff happened to be a writer, and for those of you who've been waiting for the big uh, cheer and applause moment in this uh, uh, in this segment of the podcast, here you go. Frank Conniff happened to be the writer of a little television show called Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yay! <laughs> you may know him as TV's Frank. Yes, absolutely. He played TV's Frank on the show as well. Um, so for those who haven't seen it, the, the, the best way that I can sum up the premise of MST3K is that it's like a science fiction comedy show. Um, it was a cult classic at the time and has had a big modern revival, um, in part because the people who created it have done the... taking the kind of novel approach of making it like extremely easy for people to watch it i know crazy um, or free yeah 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 you can <laughs> accessibility watch is fucking huge you can see all of them on on youtube there's a twitch channel that just 24 7 shows old episodes of msc3k they've made they started a kickstarter and have made some new episodes off of that featuring like Patton oswalt is involved um they actually alex i wasn't sure if you knew about this but i have heard <laughs> That since that Netflix revival was canceled, they crowdfunded uh, yet another uh, batch of episodes with those folks involved. I don't remember exactly what service they're going to provide that on, but uh, looks like there is yet more MST3K on the way. Well, I hope so. It, it's a timeless structure for the show. The premise is basically, the, the, the moving parts change a little bit, but essentially throughout all the seasons, it's a guy and his two... Uh, talking robot friends are stuck um, on a spaceship and nefarious characters are forcing them to watch the worst movies that they can find. And so there's like little interstitial comedy bits between all the characters, but most of the episode is them watching an awful movie um, and you're it's like you're sitting in a theater behind um, whoever the, the human character is and the robots as they make fun of the movie as it goes along. Um, so... Mystery Science Theater 3000 is one of those things, probably number one on my list of if I had a chance to come up with something before somebody else, I think that would be it. Because number one, it's just such a fantastic idea. It was totally novel at the time. I love it. And also, we have said how many times that that's like watching what watching a movie with us is like. Yes. Yeah. We just can't stop riffing. So I think we would have killed that and gotten rich and famous, but but no, we were born too late. It's one of those comedy ideas that is very simple but taps into something 
that everyone can relate to. Similar, like, years later, like, when Jackass came along was the same type of concept. But MST3K was, like, massively influential on, um, like, alternative-style comedy. And I, I really feel like for, like, this kind of thing that we're doing, um, which is just podcasting where you're riffing on a bunch of topics, like, played a huge role in the development of that style of comedy. Um, so they get sent... Um, with a box of other public domain movies they can use. They get sent Manos, the Hands of Fate. Frank Conniff watches it and goes, holy shit. <laughs> and um, so they do an episode um, where they watch Manos, the Hands of Fate. That episode is probably, I, I'd say is perhaps the most well-known episode of MST3K and among the most popular in no small part because the movie is even worse than their usual fodder that they watch. See, yeah, I would go so far as to say it's probably the best episode because they get to stretch the premise so far. Yeah. Like, it's, you know, previously the idea that, oh, we're being forced to watch these movies as a psychological experiment was just kind of a goof. But on that one, you could almost yes. kind of see them crack a little yeah. bit toward the end. So, so like, in the yeah, it, it was, it was just, it was just enough. In the interstitial bits, um, like even one of the evil characters, like because they, I mean, they break the fourth wall constantly. Like even the intro to the show breaks the fourth wall. But he even like says like, you know, between you, between me and all of you, I actually feel bad making them watch this one. <laughs> um, you can tell by the end, uh, and this is why like some MST3K purists say, although it's definitely an upper tier episode that is not functionally the best episode because the movie is so unwatchable that by the end they are like clearly struggling to even come up with anything to say um there will be parts where they just kind of scream into the void late in the movie <laughs> um and particular i mean you can tell something is off during that insufferably long intro when they're struggling just to find any comment at this 10 minutes of absolute nothing that they're forced to watch manos the hands of fate and that became the running thing in these long stretches of nothing that happened. They would just say the title yep. of the movie. <laughs> um, so Manos... It, it does still have maybe one of my favorite um, one-liners on MST3K of all time, which is when the uh, the sheriff pulls up, the, the two sheriffs pull up on the uh, couple making out in the car. Was that one of them said, think we should try some of that kissing there, Ed? <laughs> Don't know why that kills me so much, yeah. but... So through this episode, Manos reached kind of a cult status of its own because nobody had ever seen anything like this before. Um, in the time since, um, so first of all, the finding the original reel was really difficult. Jackie Naaman Jones, when she grew up and went to college, like she and her friends actually like put in a ton of work trying to find it. Um, she's like grew up to like even though she was upset at the premiere she's grown up to take like a huge interest in this um really all the people involved still have good senses of humor about it finally a film student at florida state university found the original 16 millimeter print in 2011 um and went and had uh they actually did like a full restoration of the film so you can actually watch a high video quality <laughs> restored version of, of manos the hands of fate um i have to see that before i die i have to know what that looks like <laughs> So Naaman Jones and all the other uh, actors who are still around, they've done, they've done several like sequel, prequel type things like direct to streaming that feature a lot of the same cast. I've not seen any of them because, like, I just don't 
think it'll be crappy in a way that's endearing like Manos is, since there's actual production value involved. Um, what if it was really, really good though? There's no way. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm that writing be, off. Wouldn't that... that be the cool? Wouldn't that be the coolest ending possible in the story though? I'm writing off that possibility entirely. Um, and also, shames yeah, how how I'm Warren just, and John I'm Reynolds just... obviously aren't involved, so there's no Torgo. True. I I would just imagine it sounds like something that Amazon Prime would do as like a a mini series now. Well, funny you mention that because a gritty a gritty reboot of Manos that like they're doing with I know what you did last summer right now. The 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 stuff they have produced I think actually does stream on Amazon Prime. So um... Manos streams a lot of places actually because it's public domain. Well, I mean the 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 modern adaptations they've done I think that's who they did them for Uh, Amazon. Um, there have also been four different stage adaptations of Manos, my favorite of which, and I need to hunt down to see if there's video footage of this anywhere, um, a Seattle theater company put together their own stage version called Manos the Hands of Felt because it featured an all-puppet cast. Oh my god. I would kill to see that. Uh, That is the second best musical horror idea I've ever seen, second only to the Evil Dead musical, (laughs) which I'm still very bummed I have not seen. So now that tons of people have seen Manos, um, how has it been rated? For quite some time, it was the lowest rated film on all of IMDb. Um, if you look at the bottom 100 now, it, it Manos is now tied for third with a rating of 2.1 out of 10. Um, it's tied with a few others, including uh, a movie made by Enemy of the, the Podcast, Kirk Cameron. Kirk Cameron's Saving Christmas is also rated oh at a 2.1, so fuck you, Kirk Cameron. Your films so how suck the, too bad how, to make everyone Christian, which is what you're trying to do. Yeah, fuck Kirk Cameron. How do they how do they score this exactly? This is this is audience score. The um, user aggregate. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Blue Tarski. Zero point zero. Um the the bottom rung of the lower one hundred, the bottom one hundred, if you will, um, is actually a tie at 2008's disaster movie. And 2004's Super Babies, Baby Geniuses 2 uh, are rated worse than Manos, The Hands of Fate, which is really saying something. I've not seen either of those, but I cannot imagine. Um, They both sound like robot chicken sketches. (laughs) uh, Manos uh, maintains uh, an impressive 0% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Because even people who love it as like an ironic watch, you can't even lie and say that it's good. I mean, it's just not... Um, you can enjoy it, but there, it is not good under any under it's, any definition. It's so of good. bad. It's so bad that even if you tried to pretend it was like an art house punk thing you were doing, where it was supposed to be that way on purpose, <laughs> like the room, that doesn't even that doesn't even hold up. Yeah, because yeah. you still accomplished absolutely nothing with this thing. And the movie's so, too goddamn yeah, boring. There's... <laughs> to to like give it even an interesting rate. It doesn't grip you in any way. It's yeah. just charming because of how amateurish it is <laughs> there's um, not like that like high level of cheese where you're like that wasn't supposed to be hilarious but that's fucking right. hilarious right you're just like all right there's a book called hollywood's most wanted that talks about the worst movies of all time ranks mano second of all time only behind the infamous plan nine from outer space plan di- nine yeah directed by the aforementioned ed wood who is the king of just god-awful god-awful movies and he knew it um Plan Nine, a truly um, remarkable piece of film. I've seen it as well. Yeah, if you if you've never seen Plan Nine, I actually own a copy of Plan Nine. Yeah. Um, 
yeah if you've never seen it give it a watch but just once just you only have to do it once yeah and don't do it sober. no one's gonna make you do it no one's gonna make you do it again and, and yeah also don't do it sober do do whatever your whatever your uh, substance of choice is a lot right before you put it on. So to wrap all this up, um, Warren, as I said, unfortunately passed away before any of this happened. Passed away um, less than a decade before the MST3K episode came out, so we didn't get to see any of the notoriety the movie got. That said, I do feel quite confident saying he would have loved the movie's second life as an ironic. Uh, uh, watch for for people he would have loved the mst3k episode ripping on it he himself said i think i made the worst movie of all time um well and i mean th this is better than anything he could have realistically hoped for because yeah. he knew from day one that this movie is going to be garbage yeah. this is the best thing that can happen to a garbage movie that it's the absolute best it can do yeah so you know i'll, I'll give a little posthumous message to hal warren Manos the Hands of Fate, um, your masterpiece. It may not be good, and it may not even be particularly watchable. Um, and that is putting it nicely. It's not watchable in the slightest, <laughs> um, unless you're watching someone make fun of it, or making fun of it yourself. So the movie you made, it, it might suck. Um, it might be boring. But its legacy is that it's brought lots of joy to drunk and or stone college students for nearly three decades now since the premiere of the MST3K episode. And that is an achievement in and of itself. So kudos to Hal Warren for putting together a truly, truly uh, unique piece of pop culture in Manos, the Hands of Fate. Yeah, lots of drunk stone <laughs> college students, not just us. <laughs> so um, my big question to the two of you um, this is going to be very general. What is the worst movie you have ever seen in theaters? Or even like the worst theater experience okay. for other reasons. Okay, so for me... I have a guess as to what yours might this. be. The only time I have ever like vocalized my yes. displeasure... I knew this is where you were going. In a movie theater. <laughs> me and three of my friends went to go see the Nicolas Cage movie Knowing. And I think 2006 or uh -huh. seven when that came out. Maybe 08. But it looked really cool in the previews. And the movie, for most of it, was fine. Because it was what it looked like in the previews, which is this inexplicable, like, weirdo conspiracy thing. And then they did the big reveal, and it was fucking aliens. <laughs> the whole thing. Just orchestrated by aliens. That is the dumbest goddamn twit. That is the most hackneyed thing in the world. And I literally stood up in my seat because it was only there was only like three other people in the theater besides us. And I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> and then I realized where I was and sat back down. But yeah, that was the worst I've ever seen in theaters, I think. My worst theater movie, it was around the time where like you just kind of went to the movies on a Friday and you hoped something would come out. And I went uh, with my family and some friends and we saw a movie called The Greatest Game Ever Played. And we had no idea what it was going to be about. We were like, fuck it. It's got a really cool name. Let's go see it. It was the most goddamn boring movie about golf I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> goddamn life. <laughs> and I looked it up, and apparently it's rated it, it's rated well on IMDb. Um, 
it fucking has Shia LaBeouf. It's got a 7.4 out of 10 on IMDb, but it was the most goddamn boring movie when you aren't prepared to watch a golf movie. And so it was I a remember... it was a worse it was a worse golf movie than The Legend of Bagger Vance then. I remember angrily sleeping in the theater. Like, I fall asleep in theaters <laughs> on the floor. I was like this movie's bullshit. Wake me up when it's over. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that that is another thing, another piece of our lore that Jack is notorious for is being able to fall asleep wherever, whenever, no matter what's happening. I'd so, fall asleep sitting in any events. position. Yeah, no, we could hang you upside down from a rod on the ceiling with your head three feet from the floor, like and you would be asleep inside five minutes. Up on a hanger like in Muppet Family Christmas. <laughs> exactly. This... That's exactly like I, I actually have explained it to people that I know have seen that movie. Like, I have explained it that way. Uh, I'm I'm shocked that it took us eight episodes to make a Muppet Family Christmas reference, by the way. Um, but yeah, Jack... That's going to hit for a very... That's going to hit for a very small number of people, but those for whom it does will definitely appreciate it, I think. Yeah, Jack is a guy who can fall asleep to make a point. Which yes. is a rare skill, which it sounds like that's what you did here. As an act of protest, I thought. <laughs> yeah, he sounds like either the world's weirdest activist or lamest X-Man. Like, that's his power. I just snap my fingers and I'm unconscious. Mine, of course, is the the my experience with the movie Now You See Me, but I will not go into that because we're at the end of this podcast. time. We, we don't have two more we gen- hours. We genuinely don't. It is a long rant that I have. And I've heard the rant. We might need to save it for a future episode, but it is legendary how angry it makes you. you yeah, you just got to wind we, me up and let me go. I have a lot to say about that piece of shit movie. One one of my like 24-hour streams, you came in on Discord and hung out with me, and you ranted for like 35 minutes on it. <laughs> yeah, uh, start to finish, it's lengthy, and we don't have time for it. But perhaps another <laughs> time. Um, and uh, I... But yeah, that's Hal Warren, and that's the story of Manos, The Hands of Fate. Um, my suggestion for how to engage with it really is to watch the MST3K episode. If you want to attempt to watch it, you know, Raw Dog afterwards, go for it. But um, I am telling you, it's not that fun. Um, you kind of need someone... You kind of need to feel like you have someone with you experiencing it. And pointing out the same stupid things that you notice, and MST3K. Yeah, is don't great do for that. don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. I can uh, watching that movie yeah. alone sounds unfathomable yeah. to me. It's, it's like, like that's a, a thing you trip. do. Yeah, that's a thing you do when you're kind of when you're kind of <laughs> fucked up with your buddies. Yeah. Like that's it's yeah. a group activity. If you're you just, need someone there to tether you down and keep you in reality, you can't drift into that movie alone. <laughs> Yeah, you need someone there to acknowledge that this really is as bad as it seems to you. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I do highly recommend the MST3K episode and just MST3K as a whole. Just go find a list of the best episodes. Watch them all. Um, it's fantastic. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, that's Hal Warren. And that was our uh, trio of uh, fun, fun topics this week. Um, next week will be the holidays, so we don't we haven't exactly figured out what um what our schedule is going to be like for that but um thank you all for joining us so much this week we're three eight episodes and uh what a what a journey that it's been um so to conclude all this um i guess we'll go around the horn cody where can the people find you find me on twitter i am at son of gravy 42069 jack how about you 
Uh, this week I'll plug my Twitter as well. You can find me on Twitter at Jack John Jose. I post a lot of memes. I post a lot of pictures of my cats and anything that I'm doing. A lot of ja- yeah, a lot of it's dick jokes back and forth with me. That's yes, most of what your Twitter is. A lot of sexual tension between me and Cody. You can see that play out live on Twitter. <laughs> um, you can also, I'll, I'll just do this for you. Um, you can find Jack on Twitch at Jack John Plays Games. Um, you had a pretty big week, I understand, with that. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, kudos on all that and uh, uh, fun time always had by all you can see him uh, playing some good games you can see him playing some uh, uh, not so good games but it's always it's always a fun time no matter what and sometimes the games are always good in. the games are always good I'm just shit at them and sometimes I pop in to make a nuisance of myself in the chat and that's always a good time as well yeah uh, every once in a while I will make an appearance as well yeah so uh, you can follow me on Twitter at turpin 4 prez that's turpin the number four prez um, follow the podcast account as well. It's here's a guy pod. Um, this past week, I shared a thread of uh, new Jack videos after the, the release of last week's episode. So um, you can find little tidbits like that and little previews of the episode as well. Um, so yeah, uh, also, oh yeah, we have the, uh, the Gmail account. It's here's a mailbox at gmail.com. Send us any uh, comments, suggestion, feedback, heckling, whatever you want. Um, and we may feature it on the show. Um, so that's it for this week, and uh, uh, we hope to see you again next time. Or see, here, whichever. We hope you hear us again next time. Um, so to wrap things up... Uh, well, this is going swimmingly. <laughs> let's just wrap this up by uh, uh, turning to you, Cody. What's your uh, What kind of uh, tagline do you have for us this week? Uh, I'm doing my best Roger Ebert impression. All right. Well, uh, fantastic. So... Um, from all three of us, thank you so all. Uh, thank you so much, all of you, for listening to us, and we'll uh, hear you next time. Cody, go ahead and hit us with the tagline. Good night, and remember that knowing is the worst movie ever created by humankind. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Good night, Eddie's. <laughs>